Welcome to Restore, a podcast seeking to restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church. And now your host, Javier Diaz. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Restore podcast, episode 26. Wherever you may be and however you listen, we are always thankful that you have decided to join us on this journey to help restore the vision, restore the mission, restore the church. With that, I am really excited to have you listen to my conversation on this episode with Pastor Carl Vaders. He is the teaching pastor of Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California, where he's been a pastor there for well over 20 years. Carl has been a small church pastor all of his life, and he's written two books about it. The first book he wrote is called The Grasshopper Myth, and it is briefly mentioned, obviously, in our conversation, but we tend to focus on his most recently published book, I believe it came out in March, uh, that I have also read, called Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Congregation of Under 250. In the intro, Carl states, and I quote, This book is not about how to get your small church to become a big church. It's also not about how small churches are better than big churches. They're not. And it's definitely not about settling for less. It's not about wanting churches to be small. It's about wanting small churches to be great. End quote. The fact is, friends, that most churches in North America are considered small churches, churches of under 200 or 250. The question is, though, which is a question that is flushed out in the book as he states, what does a healthy small church look like? And Pastor Carl Vaders in our conversation really helps that out. And of course, I highly encourage you already to begin with to check out his book. Two important notes before getting into the conversation. We did have a small technical difficulty towards the end of our uh, conversation as he's answering my question regarding discipleship. Though we fixed it, I decided to keep both answers that he gave. They're very similar. Uh, he he, He does add a few things here and there. But nonetheless, I just want you to be aware of that. And I know that you will be blessed Um, with everything that he has to say. Lastly, the first three people to email me and simply say, I want this book, we will send you a copy of Carl's book, Small Church Essentials, for free. So more information coming at the end of the podcast, of the episode. So with that, I believe that you will be highly blessed as you listen to my conversation with Pastor Carl Vaders. Well, I want to welcome Carl Vaders to the Restore podcast. Carl, welcome. Hey, it's good to be with you, Javier. You know, Carl, uh, before we get into it, I, I uh, we were just talking about this, but I, I uh, want to be transparent. It's, it's really cool to say, even though it's not spelled that way, but I don't think I'm going to be able to, spay, to say that I spoke with a Vader, or, or it's, it's really Vader's, right? This, so how many people yeah, have on your name with Darth Vader and the, and the whole thing? Well, we actually had a cat that we named Darth. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. Every time we went to the vet, people would show up out of nowhere. Hey, have you met Darth Vader's? It's actually his name. Oh, my it goodness. Was, yeah, a completely black cat named Darth Vader's. You just had to go there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had to. But anyways, thank you so much, Carl. I know we just met. And um, again, I, I really appreciate uh, you know your time being on our podcast. So let's get right into it. Um, tell us. Tell us about yourself, uh, your call to ministry. Uh, how you ended up at your current location, your current 
um, place where you are, you know, actually leading and um, why you wrote Small Church Essentials and uh, the previous book as well, uh, The Grasshopper Myth. Sure. Um, I'm actually a third generation pastor. Um, and I've been uh, in ministry for over 30 years, the most recent 25. I've been in uh, Fountain Valley, California, which is just eight miles south of Disneyland. Hmm. And um, Orange County is an interesting place. Uh, California in general doesn't go to church a lot. We have very, very low percentage church attendance. But when we go, we go big. Hmm. Uh, and Orange County particularly, I mean, I'm just a couple miles away from the original Calvary Chapel, the original Vineyard. Crystal Cathedral, Saddleback Church, wow. just over the border was the Fuller Church Growth Institute, Amy Semple McPherson's uh, Angelus Temple. So it's not just a place where big churches and ministries happen, but where big movements begin yeah. uh, right around my, in my front door. So I came here uh, 25 years ago. Uh, my third pastorate, uh, the first one was a tiny church in the Redwoods, and the second, and, and it was a great church. The second one was a church in crisis that that kind of beat us up for 20 months until we left with our tails between our legs. Wow. So we came here kind of hurting and bruised and beaten 25 years ago. Um, the church uh, had 30 people on a big Sunday. They'd been through five pastors in 10 years. Mm. So they were really hurting as well. So it was a hurting pastor and his family and a hurting church. Mm. And um, we spent the first seven years basically just having potlucks and hugging each other. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty much all it was. And at about seven years, I finally looked around and said, okay, we're healthy now. Um, numerically, uh, we were running about 75 at that point, but that wasn't the, the factor for health. We were just simply healthy. We were finally not feeling worn down and frustrated and angry and hurt. Mm -hmm. And I finally realized, hey, we've got something to offer to the community now. So at year seven, we started doing outreach and ministry into the community. Mm. And then at about year 15, we were running about 150, 160, and we have a tiny little building. At 150, 160, we pretty much fill the main sanctuary twice. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a real tiny building. And we're completely blocked in on all sides by houses, and the houses in our community, which is just an average community in Southern California, mm -hmm. the average house goes for $750,000. Wow. So it, it's not like we can increase the land by buying the houses around us. Yeah. How does a congregation of 150 start buying $750,000 homes? Right. Uh, so what I actually did at that point was I found a local junior high school and we rented their Kappa Gym Natura Librarium. Hmm. You know, that, that, that room that every junior high school seems to have that does everything. Yeah. And it was about five times the size of our sanctuary. And in the next 20 months, we actually grew from almost 200 we were running at the time to about 400. Mm. So we doubled 200 to 420 months. And we stayed there at, at, at 400 for about four or five months. And at that point I told our deacons we needed to hire for growth. That was kind of the rule of church growth at the time. Yeah. So we actually yeah. hired for 600 because we figured we're gonna be at 600 in another two years, maybe even less at this kind of pace of, of growth. Mm -hmm. And then the growth stopped and then the growth reversed. Hmm. Well, and well. yeah, we went from 200 to 420 months. And then in less than a year, we went from 400. Actually, I can't tell you how small we got because it's fun to count when you're growing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we were shrinking so fast. I told them, stop giving me the, the, the attendance reports. I don't need the numbers. I know everybody's name. Um, <laughs> 
but we were well under 100 and we were back in our original church building again. So in less than three years, we went from just under 200 to 400 to under 100 and there was no scandal and there was no split. Wow. How did, and, if you allow me to um, interject here for a moment, how did that feel? I mean, you went through that whole spectrum of coming up and coming down emotionally and seeing a church like that and changing locations and, and then going down where now everybody knows your name, as you said. Um, what were the emotions and thoughts going through that? And like you said, there were no scandals. And so what, what was going through your thoughts? I was angry. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> to put it simply, I got ticked off. Um, you know, because I'd been reading all the church growth stuff and I followed all the rules and for a while it worked. And then why didn't it keep working? Why why did we reverse course? And I looked around, I couldn't figure out what we'd done wrong. Um, so I got mad at I got mad at this this building that seemed to be holding us back. I got mad at myself, I got mad at the congregation because now that we were back in this little building, half the people who were there were going, oh, it's just nice to be back in our church again, in a real church building. And I was like, every time they'd say it, I wanted to squeeze the life out of them. And I got angry at myself. I, I just, I was just, I was just angry and hurt and confused trying to figure out what's going on here. I followed the rules and um, I'm, I'm heading in reverse. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Uh, and I actually, uh, <clears throat> I went to the board and I told them I need to walk away for 40 days. And uh, the only reason I, wa I, the only reason I walked away for 40 days is because I couldn't find an 80 in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure many that, pastors can relate. Oh man, it's sadly true. I actually looked through scripture and thought there's got to be somewhere that somebody took an 80 or 100 day retreat somewhere because if it's in the Bible, they'll give it to me. That's actually true, and it's all 40s, of course. Uh, so I said, I need 40 days away. It sounded like a spiritual number. They gave it to me. Mm. And I, I truly didn't know if I'd come back. I was so hurt and confused. And probably if I knew another way to earn a living, I probably would have left the ministry at that point. I'd have been one of those statistics. Mm. Um, but I, I came back after 40 days. Uh, you know, God bless them. They received me back, even though I'd almost killed this great church. Mm. They even asked, do you need more time away? And if so, we'll give it to you. And I probably should have taken it, but. I didn't. I came back after 40 days. But during that 40-day season, I actually spent some time going to a local Christian counselor. He had been a pastor himself for 20 years. Good. And so I just sat down with him and started sharing my heart. Here's where I am. Here's my hurt. Here's what's happening to me. And after about two ses sessions of just emotionally regurgitating on him, mm -hmm. um, I said, you know, what's up? What's going on? What, what do you think I need to do here? And he said, Carl, it sounds to me like you have to figure out how to redefine success. Mm. Mm. And when he said that, I wanted to punch him in the nose. <laughs> uh, I said, okay, so you're telling me I'm trying to jump a 10-foot bar. I can only jump eight feet high. So let's lower the bar to eight feet and jump that and call it success? Mm. That, that, that's, that sounds like cheating to me. I, I, I can't do that. He said, no, I'm not talking about that. He says, if, if you're thinking about success being numbers and a bar, we have to figure out what success looks like without any numbers attached to it. Wow. He was shifting yeah. your paradigm big time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, to the point where I, I, ha I, he might as well have been speaking a different language. I didn't know what that meant. And I told him, I said, I don't even know what that means. I said, how do you, what does success look like if you don't have a number attached to it to make sure you're successful? I mean, I'm not about numbers, but you got to be able to measure it somehow. Right. And he goes, yeah, I don't know what that means either, but we have to figure that out for you because the number chase is killing you. Hmm. 
So we started to work on it. And by the time the 40 days was done, I didn't have the answers, but I was okay with the idea of looking for that answer. I, I had let go of the idea of numbers, even if I hadn't found a new place to land yet. Mm. And so the journey began. <clears throat> and then um, about a year later, uh, I was talking with the staff and the church was beginning to get healthy again. I was beginning to get healthy again. The numbers weren't up, but we were feeling better. And I started talking about how to get the numbers up. And I, as I caught the words coming out of my mouth, I stopped myself mid-sentence, looked at my staff and went, okay, that's it. We got to stop thinking like a big church. Hmm. And their jaws just about hit the floor because that's like the motto of the church growth movement is if you want to become a big church, you have to think like a big church. Yeah. And I said, we have to, we're a small, I said, you know, what? We, we have to stop thinking like a big church for one simple reason, because we're not one. Boom. We are a small church. Yeah. Yeah. Mic drop time, right? Yeah. I said, we are a small church. We have to figure out what a healthy small church looks like. What does a healthy small church look like? And I looked around the room and nobody had an answer, including me. Hmm. Hmm. And as I started to do the research, what I've discovered is 90% of the churches in the world are small, under 200 people. And yet most of us don't know the answer to the question, what does a healthy small church look like? It's like, man, that is a, that is a big hole in our pastoral teaching. Hmm. If we can't tell you what a healthy small church looks like and 90% of the churches in the world are healthy. So yeah. that started me on my search that eventually led to the book and the blogs and the teaching and everything else. Okay. And we're going to put all that on the show notes. Um, you know, you have a website that you started, New Small Churches. Is that is that correct? I'm going to look at, look, look at New, it here. NewSmallChurch.com. NewSmallChurch.com. Um, it led you to write the uh, Grasshopper Myth. Uh, that was your first book, correct? Um, right. Though th we want to focus on the uh, latest book that you released um, and that I read. Uh, give us a little bit of a snippet of the Grasshopper Myth, and then we're going to dive into um, the newest book. Sure. And yeah, what's the small between them? Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the Grasshopper Myth was during this whole season. I'm, I'm starting to collect ideas about small churches and even write down my frustrations and so on. And I start teaching it to my board and staff and we have bi biannual retreats and I was teaching this stuff. And after one of them, my wife came to me and said, you know, you need to, you keep complaining that nobody's written a book about this stuff. You need to write a book. Hmm. I said, uh, I'm not going to write a book. Nobody's going to read a book by me. I'm this small church pastor nobody's ever heard of. She said, well, who else is going to write a book about small churches other than a small church pastor? And how many famous ones are there? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay, you're right again. So I wrote it basically just to get it off my chest. And so the grasshopper myth, uh, well, the title, it, it, the, the, the premise of the book is in the title. And it was a weird, I know it's a weird title. When, when you write a book called The Grasshopper Myth, you've got some explaining to do. Uh, it comes from the book of Numbers, you know, where the, the spies go into the land and 10 come back with the report that says, um, you know, there we. Uh, I'll, I'll, I went brain freeze. This is the main passage I quote all the time, and I went brain brain freeze. That's okay. They come back and they report there were giants in the land. All the people we saw there are great size, uh, and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Mm. And um, that's the challenge. A lot of small church pastors see a grasshopper in the mirror. Yeah. And, but if you don't see a grasshopper in the mirror, nobody else will see a grasshopper in you. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeling like a grasshopper, that's a myth. 
We have to get over the grasshopper myth. We are not grasshoppers. Uh, Jesus didn't wake up this morning depressed by the size of your church. Right. Um, you may have, but he did not. Um, and so the grasshopper myth is uh, my story. It talks about some of the frustration and some of the some of the comments that are often made to to or about small churches that de- that unintentionally demean us or hurt us. It encourages small church pastors that you can have a great church even though it's small. And so it's really kind of it's it's the book for the discouraged small church pastor or for maybe even the denominational leader who can't figure out how can small churches even be of any value. So it it it, it values small churches and kind of assesses what the current dynamic is around that. Uh, and then the second book, Small Church Essentials, um, which I just wrote, really, uh, we put a big old wrench on the cover of it to give you an idea that it's about the tools. So small church, uh, Grasshopper Myth gives you kind of a philosophical statement about the value of small churches, and then Small Church Essentials gives you the tools to actually help a small church become a great church. Awesome, and I, I want to thank you for that. Um, and so let's, let's talk about the one um, I want to I'm going to go back and read the grasshopper myth. I haven't read that one. But and to be fair, if, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but you don't necessarily have to read the grasshopper myth in order to get something really, really great information and and just great content from um, small church essentials. Is that is that fair to say? I want to encourage people oh, yeah. to read both, but you can definitely read uh, the most. You can read them in any order. Yeah, they can go in any order. Yeah. Right, right. So let, let's talk about the book. Um, you, you state there uh, in which you say um, too, too many small churches and their pastors are laboring under a false impression. And you kind of mentioned this already, a lie, really, that their church can be great until it becomes bigger. And uh, we, we need to put that lie to rest, you, you say, starting in the heart and ministry of every pastor of every small church. So. So once you came to that realization yourself and uh, you already kind of, you know, hinted on it, tell us what you would call a great small church. Yeah, I, I it's a great question. And it, again, it's one of those things where at first it was, OK, I'm trying to figure out what, how do we do this without numbers attached? Because everything that I'd heard about health was numbers, numbers, or at least a percentage of the people are attending small groups and that kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, and it really comes back to such basic things that it's almost embarrassing to have to state it. <laughs> it comes back to, in my mind, to three basic elements. One, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And we know that's the most important because, well, Jesus was directly asked the question and directly answered the question. Right. This is the most important commandment. So there's no doubt. And secondly, the Great Commission, which, of course, is the only commandment from Jesus mentioned in all four Gospels and the Book of Acts. Go and make disciples. And then the third one that we often forget in a church, it's what I like to call the pastoral prime mandate. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 uh, is the only place in the New Testament where the word pastor is actually used to refer to a title of a position in the church. Uh, It's used in other places as, as equivalent to shepherding. But as a, as a leader in the church, the only place the word pastor is mentioned is in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. And we have to share the spotlight there with four other ministry gifts, the evangelists and teachers and so on. And we are given one, um, one, one thing to do, and that is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Yeah. So what we often have is we'll have a church sometimes that isn't doing any of the three. They're not, doing, they're not loving God or loving each other. They're not sharing their faith and they're not equipping the saints and that's just an unhealthy church right 
then you, a church begins to get healthy, and usually they begin to get healthy by starting to do the Great Commandment, which is the right, great place to start. So all of a sudden you've got a church, and you look around, and you go, wow, we're, we're having great worship, and we're having great fellowship, we're loving each other, we're loving God. Why isn't the church growing? Well, because you're only doing the Great Commandment, you're not doing the Great Commission. So that's a loving church, but it's not an effective church because it's insular. You're only loving God and each other. That's a good thing, but it's not enough. You need to add to that the Great Commission. So you're loving God, you're loving others, and now you're sharing that love outside the walls. Right. But if you only do those two things and don't do the third one, that's where you end up getting burnt out pastors and passive members because you might have a church that's doing evangelistic outreaches and feeding programs and everything else. But if we're not equipping the saints to do the work in ministry, then it's all being done by that small group of leaders, maybe in a small church by a single leader. So the pastor's now running around like crazy. There's great worship going on. Yeah. There's great fellowship happening. And the pastor's running all the evangelistic out, uh, outreaches mm. and the pastor's worn out and the congregation's just sitting there letting the pastor wear himself out. Right. Right. You've got to add that third element, which is equipping the saints to do the work of ministry, where every member becomes a minister. And if we begin to do that, then we have a healthy and effective church because we're loving God. We're loving each other. We're sharing that love outside the walls and members are involved as ministers. When you do that, you have a healthy church. Hmm. Powerful, powerful. We appreciate fleshing that out. And of course, the book does even more so with fleshing that out as well. Um, you know, Carl, I love towards the end of the book, even though you, in a different way, you stated it at the beginning as well, but you state, pastoring a small church with passion and joy is not about settling for less. And I love that. It's about doing all you can with everything you've been given now. So, so again, when, when we hear small churches, right, like your, your, your basic premise in both books is that. Small churches are okay. We're a small church. All churches start small. I love how you flesh that out, right? Everybody that's pastored to some degree that has probably gone through some, not, not all pastors. Let me take that back. Of course, some come in as an associate already in a big church on staff and things of that nature, but many, many pastors and statistically, as you mentioned earlier, most pastors have, are pastoring small churches. And so we can come up with many excuses. You know, we don't have enough staff. We don't have enough volunteers and all of that. But again, your premise is that that should not be a, a, a rationale, a reason to not do passionate, joyful work and settle for less. But you have all the experience of going through it yourself in such a powerful way. Uh, flesh that out for us a bit you know, more about not settling for less. Yeah, it's a huge part of it. It's it's um, when I actually when I was going through my forty days away, um, uh, I, I was so hurt and so angry. Uh, I actually went to a couple friends and said, "I need you to take my prayer burden for me. I'm too mad at God to talk to him right now." Wow. Yeah, that's how how bad a place I was, and they did. They took my prayer burden, and I will I will be grateful to them every day for the rest of my life for doing that for me. Mm. And I went home and I watched, I read stupid novels and watched stupid TV. Mm. Um, I didn't go home for 40 days and pray and fast. Um, I, I, I watched <laughs> stupid TV. 
yeah. uh, that is not that is not a recommendation. I don't want anybody at home to be going, oh, if I'm in a bad way, Carl Vader says to go home and watch stupid TV. No, that's not a recommendation. Sure. That's a confession of sin. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, or, or a confession of weakness, at least. Thank you for your uh, transparency. Yeah, I was just that worn out. And if you're going to watch stupid TV, you're going to watch reality TV because there's nothing <laughs> stupid to do. So I watched a lot of reality TV. And during that season, I was actually, my, my favorite TV shows were the two shows where they come in and they uh, to come into a failing restaurant and they help rebuild it in a couple days or a week. It's always a British guy telling Americans how to fix their restaurants for some reason. It's always a British guy. Yeah. We, we, we hear criticism with a British accent much easier for some reason. Uh, <laughs> If it was done in a southern accent, nobody would have bought it. I don't know why, but it is about our, our perception of those accents. Uh, but anyway, as I'm watching it, I realize, oh, there's some interesting patterns. They'll come into a failing restaurant, and they'll maybe walk in and go, man, I drove by three times because I couldn't see your sign. Or I walked in, and nobody greeted me. Or I walked in, and wow, the smell. When, did, when was the last time you cleaned this place? Yeah. But one thing they never, ever did, they never walked into a failing restaurant, looked around, and said, you know what this restaurant's problem is? It's not big enough. Mm. Never once. And in fact, sometimes they would say, in fact, you've got too much square footage. You need to reduce it a little bit so that you can handle the smaller load that you've got until it's time to expand. Because they've figured out something that we in the church need to figure out, which is that bigger fixes nothing. Mm. If you've got an unhealthy church and you make it bigger, you've just got a big, bigger, unhealthy church, and that's not good. So what we need to do and what they recommended, and I get, I'm, I'm taking a lesson from reality TV, which is not real, I get it. So we're just <laughs> just using it as a picture to draw for you. Right. Um, but what we need to do is we've got to get the church healthy now, as it is now. So one of the things they would do, and this is actually a legitimate thing that happens in restaurants, is they would take a menu, for instance, of a, of a small little restaurant that's failing, and they'd count all the items on the menu. And they might have over 100 items that they're offering on the menu. And they're going, no wonder you're taking stuff out of the freezer and nuking it instead of buying fresh food. Because when you're trying to cover a menu of 100 items in a tiny little restaurant, you're not going to do any of it well. Yeah. So what they would often yeah. do is they'd say, okay, here's what we're going to do. I've looked around the neighborhood, and nobody is doing this particular type of cuisine. And you can do that well. And I'm going to give you five items in that type of cuisine that you will do better than anyone in your county. And you can be known for in your county doing just those five items, but it's all of one cuisine. Hmm. And they usually buck against it because they're thinking, oh, our regulars will hate that, our regulars will hate that. But what happens is if you can be known for one type of thing and just do it really, really well, people will drive a long way to eat your food. And it's exactly the same thing in a small church. So if you're in a small church, you don't wait until you get big in order to do it with excellence. Figure out what you do well now while you're small. It may only be one thing. For most small churches, it's only going to be, we do this one thing. Well, then do it really, really well, and don't burn your energy trying to do things that you don't do well. You, sometimes the path to better is to toss things we don't do as well and concentrate on the things we can do better. That's where I think most small churches need to start on their trek towards excellence. Right. And I, I, I love what you're saying, Carl, because again, in the book, you flesh it out and, and you, you show with the essentials um, and with your stories and, and then your personal story, of course, um, that it it's a lot of intentionality. In other words, it seems that when you went through that, that period of, finding a better answer than just trying to be 
a big church. And, and, and to be clear, um, you make very clear, and I love how you you are not knocking big churches whatsoever. Um, no, not in any way at all. Love churches of all sizes. Right, and that's the key there too. You you're not knocking them. You you've been on podcasts of. Uh, very well-known, you know, speakers, Kerry Newoff and others, as you've mentioned, and 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 uh, you've been to those. Uh, you have been to Brick, you know, Warren's compound over there. Um, and um, again, contextually, you're in a place where you're surrounded by mega churches. Um, and so, with that said, you have been after you went through your, um, you know, personal experience. You became very intentional of understanding, I'm a small church, but we can still do a lot now. But the a lot has to be within what we are able to do now. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You, you go deep instead of wide. Um, mm. uh, you know, Andy Stanley wrote a book a couple of years ago that became right. very popular deep and wide. If you can go deep and wide, great. But most can't do both. You're either going to go deep or wide, especially when you're smaller. And if you have a choice of only going deep or only going wide, go deep. Always choose deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I like, again, you, you specifically state in the book that this is, this is not changing our fundamentals, right? Jesus is first. He's the way of salvation um, and, 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 and everything that follows with that. But this is about the essentials of the practicality of what it means to minister in our, in our specific locations, context, which may, which may vary. Um, in, in the book you state, um, in regards to that, um, I like what you say when it says, instead of asking, our church is small, so what? We needed to ask, our church is small, now what? Which is kind of what we're saying. So, so when you ask yourself that question, and you've already alluded to it somewhat, um, where did that now what lead you to do specifically in your context, and why? Yeah, great question. Um in the book, under that little now what section, I tell the story about a, this little clip from the movie Apollo 13. Yeah. Uh, the astronauts are in trouble. They've got to get back to Earth. They have not been able to land on the moon. And they have now discovered that the um, they've got to change out their air filter because they've overused it. But the air filter from one part of the ship doesn't fit the part of the ship that they're in. And they've literally got to figure out how to fit a round peg into a square hole. And um, the scene shows these engineers getting a big box of material, dumping it on the table. And basically what they say is everything that's on this table is everything that's on Apollo 13. So we have to figure out how to fix this problem using only the material that's on the table. And nothing on the table is designed to fix the problem. <laughs> nothing. Right. It's just the stuff that happens to be left on Apollo 13 right now. Mm -hmm. And I look at, I, I watch that scene and I go, that's a perfect description of pastoring a small church, quite frankly. You know, we, we're in this position of, okay, really, this is the mess that I'm supposed to work with? Yeah, that's the mess you've got, and the mission hasn't changed, and lives are at stake. Mm. <laughs> yeah. The mission of the small church that's hurting is the same as the mission of the big church that's flush with cash. It's exactly the same mission, even though we look around and go, but I wouldn't choose to do this mission with these materials. Well, that doesn't change the mission at all. So the now what? is okay here's my position i've got this building or i don't have a building or i've got an old building or i've got too small a building for the people or too big a building for the people or uh the church used to have a great reputation and now it's got a lousy reputation yeah. or you know, name your problem here's the mix of issues that we've got um faith doesn't pray for something new to be on the table 
faith uses what's on the table. Mm. Faith says we're going to accomplish this mission with what we've been given. If along the way we are given more materials to do the mission with, we will gratefully accept and use those new materials. But in the meantime, we're going to do what we can with what we've got, and we're going to get the mission done. And that's how that's where innovation happens. Innovation doesn't happen from the big church or the big company that has tons of money and tons of resources. That's not where most innovation happens because yeah. they can do it the standard way because they've got the money to do it with. Innovation always comes from need, always. I, I can't figure out how to do it the normal way, so I have to figure out how to do it a different way with less money, with less stuff, with fewer people. And that's why even the tagline for you know, my website has the word innovation in it, you know, it, 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 encouraging innovative small church leaders because we have to innovate because we don't have the resources. So we can look at the lack of resources and go, oh no, or we can look at the lack of resources, add innovation to it and go, yeah. okay, now what? Hmm. So how did, what were, you, you've mentioned a few, I think, but what specifically when the now what came out, what, what, was, what did that now what look like in your context? Like just maybe one or two illustrations from that. Yeah, um, the primary thing for us was, uh, like I said, when we were um, growing from 400, when we went to 400 and we thought we were going to be 600 soon, we actually went out and hired staff for growth. Mm. And then we found ourselves under 100 with a staff for a church of 600. Mm. Yeah, so uh, thankfully those folks all saw the writing on the wall and found other jobs, so I didn't have to fire anybody because that would have been that would have been a burden yeah. too deep for me to bear. Um, but we looked around and realized one of the reasons that we couldn't sustain the growth was because we were we didn't have a strong enough foundation of the leaders in the church. So part of our now what was okay? How do we train our own folks? How do we raise a farm team to use a baseball term uh, where we're raising our own folks to become leaders? Hmm. Uh, we're going to have to figure out how to do that. Uh, another thing that we did was we got this tiny little building. And we realized we'll never do all the ministry we want to do inside this church building. But it looks like we're stuck with just this church building because the land around here is so expensive. Right. So we have to figure out how to do ministry from the church, not just in the church. Mm. But we're constantly coming up with outside the walls ministry out of necessity. Yeah. I mean, we have to do evangelism because we don't have the room not to. <laughs> so all of that is yeah all of that is part and, and all of it as you know as you're hearing it you know every, hopefully every listener is listening to that and going uh carl that's just new testament yeah i know too <laughs> but but sometimes we aren't forced into we don't do the new testament until we're forced into it by circumstances yeah so that became our now what our now what was what did the early church do without the resources, without the buildings, without the money, and under persecution, which thankfully our church doesn't face? But take a look at what they did and how they turned the world upside down. So our now what has been that. It's been how do we double down on the basic principles of God's word that do not require a bigger building or more people or another dollar in the offering in order to accomplish it? Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful. Powerful. I I had written the book. I was looking. I was looking, reading it, and I was thinking, and I was thinking. A lot of what's is just um, fundamentals of the New Testament that you're flushing out in a powerful, practical way. I mean, of the essentials that you were 
um, putting in the book. Um, and it's, it's, it's important to get back to those, as, as you were saying, loving God, loving people, um, and equipping people. And so that's, that's extremely powerful. But again, I encourage people to, you know, read the book where all of that is flushed out a whole lot more. Um, with that said, let's kind of, for some, you know, some may argue and say, well, a small, if, if a small church is winning souls to Christ, right? That's our, that's everybody's ultimate goal. Praise the Lord. Wouldn't it grow? Wouldn't, wouldn't the numbers grow? They would say, Carl, come on, Carl. Something happened in there that you went from two to 400 back to 100. I mean, you guys, something happened. Uh, so, so if a small church stays small, is it really being effective reaching people for Jesus? And, and it, it, if not, is it not, wouldn't it grow if it really is? And if it does grow, do we stay small by planting other churches? And so I know some of my listeners are, are, are you know, thinking like this and, um, maybe thinking like this. If they're not, I'm throwing that question out there to you anyway. What are your thoughts when you hear that? I'm sure you've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, that question sounds very familiar. Uh, yeah, if your listeners haven't been thinking that, then um, what's wrong with them? Come on, that's, that's, that, that's a question everybody ought to think. It should be, of course, because that question makes absolutely perfect logical sense. I thought the same way for years, if, and, and which is why I was frustrated when it wasn't getting bigger, because wait a because of that logic if we're reaching people for Jesus then there'll be more people sitting in the seats in front of me then the church will get bigger that's just it makes logic right it's a it's a logical sensible theory right but like any theory like when a scientist has a theory and they, they sit through and they go if this happens then this then this then this oh that makes sense what does the scientist do immediately the scientist puts it to an experiment you got to test it in the real world and when we test that theory in the real world, what we discover is growth, numerical congregational growth is not inevitable, even in churches that are doing the Great Commission and reaching people for Jesus. It doesn't happen still for a majority of the churches, even in strong, effective, outward-reaching churches. Uh, now, some do, some will grow numerically, but a whole bunch still don't. So there's other factors going on. Okay. And as I've done my research and talked to now, you know, thousands of pastors in hundreds of churches, um, what I've discovered is that there are different types of churches that don't grow numerically for different reasons. Uh, I'll, I'll start with our church as an example. Uh, we um, have discovered that we're a sending church. We didn't start out to be that. We didn't sit down and write a mission statement and say, okay, part of the purpose of our church will be to send people out rather than keeping them in the seats. Mm. But what we discovered over a few years was there's barely a month that goes by when we don't say goodbye to somebody, not because they're leaving angry, although we still do have those occasional ones, <laughs> you'll never get past that, sure. but because they're going off into ministry. Mm. Um, just yesterday, we flew 25, 26 folks from our church to Panama where they're going to be um, building a playground and doing evangelistic ministry and helping with a couple of ministries there, uh, reaching kids on the streets just outside of Panama City. Wow. And almost wow. every time we do a missions trip, at least one of the people on that missions trip is called to full-time ministry. And within a couple of years, they head off and they leave our church. And so we started discovering we do that a lot. People are constantly leaving to go to, to be on staff at another church or to become a missionary or to do something like that. And so we looked at it and realized, oh, okay, this is part of the way our church participates in the growth of the kingdom of God and the growth of the worldwide church, 
even if it doesn't necessarily result in the growth of our particular congregation because we're a sending church. So some churches are sending churches. Ours are now some are both. Some add to the seats daily and send people out daily. Yeah. But some churches, like I said before, can't go deep and wide. So that's part of our deep is that. There are other churches that are in retirement communities. I got a friend nearby here. He's in a retirement community. Every year he buries twenty to twenty-five percent of his congregation. Mercy. But over the last seventeen or eighteen years, he has stayed the same size. That's equivalent to 20 to 25% growth every year. Yeah. Anywhere else, that would be considered massive success. Yeah. yeah. But because of the age of his congregation and how many are passing away on a regular basis, it's not seen as success by others. Uh, so there's all kinds of reasons. That's just two of, of a dozen. I think I list maybe a dozen in the book of how churches will often, how that will often happen. So again, it's a valid question. I understand the question. I appreciate the question. I have thought the question myself, it needs to be asked, but that's my answer. Sure. And, and again, you fleshed it out even more so in the book. Um, but I think part of that answer, if I'm understanding correctly, and, as, and if I, as I was reading and listening to you, is that growth does happen. It just looks different. Is that, is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if there's not, the growth, growth does have to happen. I absolutely agree with that. But we sometimes have only a singular uh, opinion about growth, and that happens to be numerical increase. It's kind of like um, if if you're overweight and you want to lose weight, mm -hmm. um, if the only thing you're counting is your calorie intake and your poundage loss, you might end up doing unhealthy things to lose those pounds. Right. You might undereat. You might discover some, uh, or, or or say you get to the point where you now want to build muscle mass, and so all you're counting is the size of your biceps. Well, you can get bigger biceps by shooting things into your body that are unhealthy for your body. Mm -hmm. But in addition to either losing weight or gaining muscle mass, you also need to be keep, keeping track of your blood pressure and of your cholesterol and right, uh, yeah. your home, hormone balance. There's all kinds of things that go into health of your body other than just the weight loss or the muscle mass increase. Mm -hmm. And in a healthy church, it's the same way. Um, there are a whole bunch of factors that go into what a healthy church looks like. We all know well, it's possible for a church to get bigger and not be getting healthier because health involves far more than just that. But too often we ignore the other factors in favor of that one of numerical growth, which again, isn't bad or wrong at all. I, I, if, if there aren't churches growing numerically in our group somewhere at least, then we've really got some warning signals that something is really, really wrong. Right. But most of the time when the church grows, it's actually through the multiplication of smaller churches and not through uh, the growing of larger churches. That's typically the way the church really does grow. Carl, a, a follow-up with that. Um, have you guys planted or thought about planting another church somewhere in the area, maybe where people live? Uh, since you're ascending church, has that uh, been part of it, or where do you guys stand with that? Yeah, yeah, we've actually participated in the launching of uh, of another church next town over, just about three miles from us, actually. Hmm. Uh, and they're going really great today, doing really well. We sent over a dozen people from our church uh, to start that. I think it's been five, four or five years ago now. Okay. Uh, we are we have been working uh, in in with various degrees of success on getting a Hispanic congregation started because in Southern California we have a large Hispanic uh, uh, population around us, so we're working on that as well. But yeah, we've launched one, and we're looking at launching another. 
Okay. And again, that, that's another way where it's, it's growing and you're sending. So you're, you're following what God is leading you guys to do. Um, with that said, uh, discipleship, right? Discipleship is obviously a big part of what we're called to do. So what, what does a discipleship process look like in a small church like yours? Or what, what do you think it should look like in a church um, that is small? And, um, and by the way, maybe we should categorize it. I think you mentioned it at the very beginning, but, but also, uh, let, you know, let's talk about what we consider a small church, right? As in under 100, 200, 300, and, and kind of go with that first, if you don't mind, and then answer the uh, discipleship question. Yeah, that's great to define. On the cover of the book, it says under 250. Um, and I know if you're pastoring a typical church of somewhere around 50, and that is a typical size church in America, about 50, uh, a 250 sounds mega. Uh, I get it. I've been at, I've been stuck at a church under 30 for years before I was here, and 250, I couldn't imagine being a church that big. And for a lot of you, uh, 250 may be bigger than the biggest church in town, so 250 may seem big. So we draw the line at around 250 because at around that spot, it's called the 200 barrier, which can happen anywhere between 150 to 300, right. depending on a whole bunch of factors. Above that level, you have to pastor differently. You can no longer be the hands-on shepherd for everybody. You have to entrust it to staff and to under shepherds. You have to become more of a manager and less of a shepherd. Um, and so that's the shift that has to take place above the 200 barrier, which happens anywhere between 150 to 300. So anything under that or fewer than that, we consider a small church. Anything over that, we consider a mid-sized church. And then you go to big and mega beyond that. So that's where the line is typically drawn. Um, and then there's discipleship. Um, now, before you get into the, the uh, discipleship, I know I'm trying to cover a lot here in our time together. So thank you for your time again. Yeah, but in regards to that, you, you, you mentioned it pretty clearly in your book that that not every pastor is is really called or capable of pastoring a church as it gets bigger. In other words, that requires, as you mentioned, a different type of leader. And you, you get into that. Um, but you, you talk about how most pastors are wired to be pastors of small churches and um, shepherding and, and doing that. And again, I, I encourage people to read the book and, and all, but maybe you can, can you touch a little bit on that as well? Sure. Yeah. Um, actually it goes to the explanation, which some people may be sitting there going, is he ever going to tell us why it dropped from 400 down to under 100? <laughs> yes, I am. Here we go. This, th thank you for reminding me of it. Cause it gets me back to that story that everybody usually wonders about. Um, you know, in trying to figure out why we dropped from 400 down to under 100, there were a couple of things strategically that we could have done better. There's always some of that. But the main reason was this. Um, to make that jump, I switched from being a pastor to being a manager, from being uh, a, a shepherd to being, um, uh, well, they, 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 they use the term shepherd to rancher is one of the phrases that's often used for that. Yeah. And I made that shift. But I was miserable. Um, and I didn't know I was miserable because how can a pastor be miserable when their church is doubling from 200 to 400 in less than two years, mm. right? So, but I was miserable uh, because I was operating outside of my calling and outside of my gifting. I was spending almost all of my ministry hours doing things that I hate, that I'm not good at, and that suck my soul dry. Mm. Almost all my time was being spent trying to raise funds, trying to find a new building, fighting with City Hall, trying to get new staff. And some pastors are great at that and are called to do that. And if right. you are good at that and you are called to do that, by all means, do it. Do what God has gifted you to do. 
but I'm not called to manage systems. I'm called to pastor people. And I think that's probably the main reason most churches stay small. It's not because the pastor is incompetent or lazy or stupid or any of those things. It's because the pastor is called to pastor, to, to pastor in a more hands-on way, to shepherd people rather than manage systems. Most pastors, when I talk to them, uh, will say, no, when I was called, when you, th when you think back to your original calling and I felt called to go to ministry, how many pastors felt called to build bigger buildings hmm. as opposed to how many pastors felt called to pastor people, to teach people, to share God's love with the community? Nine out of 10 are going to answer, I was called to pastor people, to lead them in worship, to share my faith with those outside in the community. Most of us were called to those hands-on shepherding tasks. <clears throat> and so that's going to be done in smaller churches. That's not going to limit the growth of your church. It's simply going to channel it in a different way, in a much more personalized, hands-on way. Yeah. So I think that's where <clears throat> I think that's where most of that comes from. And that's certainly where it came from for me. So that's why our church shrunk, because I was operating outside of my gifting. I was miserable, and I started doing it badly because it's not what I'm called to do. Right. So, but when you return to your gifting, to where you felt God has called you, that still, once you use that, um, according to my understanding of what I've read and, and, and have heard about you, that actually still began, the church began to grow from there because you came back to where you felt you were called and you used that. And I love again in the book that, that what you're saying to, to be a strong shepherd does not mean, like you said, that people are lazy and that there won't be growth. It just may look a little different and maybe a little slower, if I can say it that way. It may take a little longer because relationships take longer. Um, and and that, as, that aspect is extremely important. So, and I love how you have that. And I, again, I encourage people to read the book. We're going we're gonna to be giving some of your books away. Um, so stay tuned um, at the end as well to hear that. A uh, little side note there. Uh, but I love how you flush that out, that that does not mean that you're simply um, only visiting people in their homes. That's, that's not, even though that's a good thing and that's encouraged, but it, that's not simply that. Is, that. is that fair to say what I'm saying? Yeah, no, very, very much so. I, I'm, I like to, um, there's a phrase that's, often, that's been used sometimes in church growth circles, especially those who are trying to build larger churches. And they'll say, let's, you know, let's go for the low-hanging fruit for the people who are ripe and ready for the gospel because you, they're there, and and absolutely that needs to be done. If somebody's just sitting there waiting to hear the gospel, we need to get there. But some of us are called to reach the people that, quite frankly, are just a little harder to reach, yeah. who have been maybe hurt or betrayed or frustrated or angry, and it's going to take us longer to spend time with them to restore their trust in God again, to help them overcome past history and past hurt. Some people just take much longer to bring into a place of trusting Christ. Hmm. Uh, but Jesus never overlooked those people for the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> yeah, he, he never overlooked them. And, and again, some people are called to the low-hanging fruit. God bless you. Go for it. Right. I'm not called to the low-hanging fruit. That's not my, my calling. I'm, I'm the person when I go to a, a, a party, I'm an introvert, so even the word party just gives me the chills. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm the one who's going to look, scan the room and find the person standing in the corner with nobody talking to them. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go over and invest in that person. And if I can spend that entire party sitting there and maybe even listening to their hurt and their pain, 
I'll drive home with my wife thinking, that was an awesome party, right? <laughs> Everybody else was off with the main group doing the main thing, and they had a great time. I'm off in the corner doing what some people would consider pastoral counseling, but I will leave that much more satisfied right. than playing the main game that everybody else is playing. Both of those things are valid. <clears throat> Both of those things are wonderful to have happened. <clears throat> but if you are called to reach to the hurting and the frustrated and the forgotten and the broken, <clears throat> that may take longer for to bring people to faith than those who are just ready to go and you just happen to be the person who brings them over the finish line. Right. Um, so we just each have to do our call. Carl, uh, back to discipleship. Um, how, what does discipleship look like in, in, in a small church like yours or what you think it should look like in others as well? Yeah, great question. One of the questions I often get asked is, what's a good discipleship curriculum for a small church? And my answer is, whichever one you like. Uh, uh, because I don't think we should be curriculum-led in our small church discipleship. Uh, the reason for curriculum is twofold. One, it keeps us between the theological guardrails so you don't have somebody going off into a ditch. It, it, it gives you that. Right. But the main reason for curriculum, from my understanding, is we use curriculum when there are too many people to mentor. Uh, Jesus didn't have curriculum. The Apostle Paul didn't have curriculum. They used the best discipleship system ever devised, which is mentoring, mm. which is taking a small group of people, walking through life with them, teaching them verbally and by example, and then set, turning them loose to do it, and then assessing them after they've done it. <clears throat> and in a small church, we don't have to mentor, we get to mentor. Mm. So if you're pastoring a church of 50 people or under 100 people, for sure. If you're pastoring a church of under 100 people, you, the pastor, can meet with every single new convert. Right. There will be few enough of them that you can actually meet with them. And if you sit down with a new convert and take an hour to ask the right questions, you can discover in an hour what the best way to mentor them is. Hmm. Ask questions like, how do you learn best? Tell me about how you liked school. Were you involved in sports? Are you hands-on? Are you a book learner? What are the ways that you like to learn the best? And what is your family like? All kinds of things. You learn enough of that, you can discover, okay, what they need is to be in on the next Bible study class that's starting. Or what they need is to meet with me once a week for coffee so I can answer their question. Or what this other person needs is to be able to sit with another mature believer and read through a book together about the basics of the faith or whatever it might be. So we can actually tailor make a mentoring situation for every new believer in a small church. And it doesn't have to be the pastor doing the mentoring of everyone. It may mean that for some, but it may mean, hey, now that I know enough about you and I know about this other mature believer in the church, I think the two of you forming a friendship and spending time together talking about faith will be something of great value to you. Discipleship in the small church has exactly the same end goal as discipleship in the big church, which is to you know, make disciples and help people become mature in their faith. But in a big church, the, most of the actual hands-on discipleship of individuals has to be assigned to people other than the primary teaching pastor because there's just too many people in the church. In a small church, we don't have to do it hands-on, but we get to do it more hands-on. Mm. Take a look at the New Testament. What you discover is that Jesus and Paul and the other apostles, they never used a curriculum 
they used the oldest and best discipleship method ever devised, which is mentoring. Mm. They walked through life with people. Sometimes in small groups, Jesus never seems to have done it intentionally with any less than three people, usually with 12. Paul always had somebody traveling with him. Usually, right? how many times do we read about Paul and it's a different person with him each time? It's Silas or it's John Mark or it's Timothy or it's Aquila and Priscilla. It's right. There's always somebody new with him. <clears throat> Why? Because he was always mentoring somebody. And then after he mentored them, he sent them off to do ministry and then mentored somebody else. So as a small church pastor, if you pastor a typical size church, which is around 50 people, that's typical, uh, give or take 20 or so. If you pastor a typical size church, certainly a church under 100 people, um, you can actually meet with every single new believer without taxing your schedule too much. Because that's, you know, you're going to have a handful of them every year. So once every couple months, really, uh, you know, at the most, you're going to meet with somebody. And if you take a single hour and you ask the right questions and really listen carefully, you can find out enough about a new believer in one hour to know what the best method for their first steps of discipleship will be. Hmm. So I'll meet with a, a, somebody for an hour and I'll ask questions like, you know, tell me about when you went to school, how did you learn? Did you like the books or were you a hands-on learner? Do you have to make the mistakes first before you figure out the right way to do it? Do you, do you do it best in collaboration with a team or by yourself? You know, you ask those kinds of questions and in an hour you can understand enough about them to go, okay, I think what you maybe need is to get in on this Bible study that's happening on Wednesday nights. Or, you know what? I'm going to connect you with a mature believer in the church, and I'm going to give you the, the two of you a book about the basics of the faith that the two of you can read together, and they'll be able to answer your question. And every once in a while, it'll be, you know what? You and I need to sit down once a week. Hmm. Let's sit down over coffee once a week, and I'll answer your questions. But it doesn't all fall on the pastor. When I say mentoring, every pastor in their mind thinks, you mean I've got to do every one of them one-on-one? -on -one? No, you don't. Uh, and again, the more we've, we're equipping the saints to do this, the more others can step up and do it. But it starts with that idea. And when you have that conversation, we get the chance to actually individualize the discipleship process for every single believer. Hmm. I think, unfortunately, in far too many of our churches, what we call discipleship is simply just getting people to finish the class. Hmm. Hmm. And I think we got a lot of people finishing classes who aren't really being disciple. They're just finishing classes because discipleship is more than finishing a class or reading a book or learning facts. Discipleship right. is about relationship and about process and about getting stuff done. Beautiful, beautiful. Powerful stuff, Carl. A lot to chew on there. Um, one last question before I let you go. And again, um, I'm really appreciative of your time. Um, I've asked this question to several of my guests um, that have passed her for a while. Um, so what, what would you tell the younger Carl um, pastoring a small church 20, 25 years ago, knowing what you know now, what would you tell that younger Carl starting off in ministry or three or four years in ministry? I would, I would tell him that you're likely to pastor a small church for most, if not all, of your pastoral ministry, mm. and I would not expect him to buy it. Wow. Because <laughs> uh, when I tell this to younger pastors, most of them just kind of roll their eyes, and that's okay. Um, 
when I was younger, I was going to take on the world and have the biggest church in town. And when you're younger and immature, that's what forward motion looks like. So, uh, you know, when a younger pastor comes to me and says, all I want to do is pastor a small church for all my ministry, it kind of worries me a little bit. I, yeah, you know, because in a younger person, drive looks like numerical increase. Mm-hmm. But I would tell him that knowing that he's probably going to ignore what I have to say, which is fine. But five years down the road, 10 years at the most, they're going to be in the same spot that virtually all of us find ourselves in, which is why isn't this working? Why isn't it getting bigger? What's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And they then at that point, they can go, hey, there was that guy that one time that told me that thing about, <laughs> and then they'll at least know there's somewhere to go to find help. When I went to find help, I couldn't find help. At the, the opening page of the grasshopper myth says, I wish someone else had written this book 30 years ago because that's when I needed it the most. So um, that, that's what I would tell my younger self and what I tell younger pastors today. Even if you don't believe it now, tuck it in the back of your head and of your heart. And when you find yourself in a small church and frustrated by it, pull that back out again and realize you don't have to be frustrated by it. You can find great joy in it. Wonderful. Carl, thank you so much for your time. Um, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, we we do have something in common besides, um, you know, being pastors that uh, you live by Disneyland and I live by Disney World. So there we go. And uh, you live eight miles, you said, or your church is eight miles from that. And uh, I'm I'm like 15 minutes really from uh, Disney World, the magic, you know, kingdom. And I, uh, the fire, I I can see the fireworks from my house almost like every night. So anyhow, uh, we We can't see them, but we hear them every night. 9.35, the booms begin. Yeah, yeah. Here's about 9, 9.15, depending on the season. Um, uh, you know, with that. Uh, and I actually um, grew up in Los Angeles. So I grew up going to Disneyland and all the good stuff there. So I know, of course, this was a while back. It, uh, Orange County looked different then when I was going than when it looks now. Uh, yeah. But, um, no oranges left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, along with that, I want to plug in the fact that you will be at the uh, evangelism conference that is put on by our Southern Union organizational part of our denomination. Um, and for those that are regular listeners, uh, will understand what I'm saying. And if not, I want uh, people to go to the southernunion.com slash EC3 and register so that you can personally come and meet uh, Pastor Carl Vader's. And you can say the word Vader's because that's his last name. I just like saying that word, Carl, because I don't get to say that too too often. And uh, if people can look and see Carl's, he, Carl's like looking at me going, I've been having to deal with this for a long time with that last name. Um, but um, so I encourage you guys, come come to the conference, come to the uh, 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 to his, you know, out, uh, I think it's going to be, I don't know if you're going to be on the main stage or if you're going to be a breakout. I'm, I'm not sure where that lies right I now. Doing, I think I'm doing one of each. I, I can't say that for sure, but I think I'm doing one of each. Okay, great, great. So I, I look forward to being there and uh, meeting you as well face to face. And um, I encourage everybody to go out and get his book, Small Church Essentials and the Grasshopper Myth as well. And so uh, they can find it on all the normal places, right? Amazon and so on, anywhere online. Yep, yep. All the regular places online, and the easiest place is my website, newsmallchurch.com. If you start there, it'll get you everywhere. Absolutely, I've checked out that website. A lot of good stuff there. 
please go and check it out, newsmontchurch.com. Carl, may God continue to bless you. Look forward to seeing you in uh, November. Thanks, Javier. Well, I hope you were challenged and inspired by what Carl had to say. I highly encourage you to go and buy both of his books. Uh, You can certainly do that on Amazon, but also make sure to check out his website, newsmallchurch.com. And as I mentioned in the intro, we are giving three of his newest books, Small Church Essential, away here at the podcast. Just shoot me an email at Javier, J-A-V-I-E-R dot Diaz, D-I-A-Z at floridaconference.com. The first three people to email me, we will send you uh, that book. Um, And so make sure to give me your address or you can also, if it's easier for you, hit me up on Twitter. Um, And you know, my handle is uh, J-A-V-I-D 21. And uh, also, I want to encourage you, I mentioned it in the conversation, to um, attend EC3. That's the Southern Union Evangelism Conference that is held every fall. Um, For more information, go to southernunion.com slash EC3. Carl will be there. I will be there. And we hopefully look forward to seeing many of you there as well. With that said... We usually take off um, here in the summer, a month or two. So don't be alarmed if you don't see a new episode in the next month or so. But be assured, we will be back after that. Until then, God bless. Thank you for listening to this Restore podcast. We hope you've been blessed. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss any of our inspiring episodes.